You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, you'll hear from Brooke Leslie Rollins, the acting director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, and House Majority Whip James Clyburn. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter at The Washington Post, and welcome to Post Live's inaugural election daily show. We're going to bring you the absolute latest information on this wild election and all of the returns as they come in next week. So stay tuned, starting today, of course, and continuing each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern. And we'll have analysis from Post reporters, assessments of key congressional races, the presidential race, the battleground states, so much to discuss. We'll also hear every day from key newsmakers and political players. Today's guests are Majority Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina, the kingmaker for Vice President Biden back in the primary. He'll be with us later in the program. We also have Acting Director of the White House's Domestic Policy Council, Brooke Leslie Rollins. She's on the forefront of the president's agenda in these final days on issues like health care and the stimulus. So glad to have her to get inside the White House this afternoon. And we'll be joined by who uh, a colleague we call the chief in the newsroom, Dan Balls, the chief correspondent of the Washington Post, to talk through everything. And there is so much to talk through. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to get together with you every day is to sh- open my notebook and to tell you what I'm hearing. So let's take a look right now at the top headlines. There are just six days to go. And the biggest story, in, in my view, is the polling in the Midwest, the Washington Post and ABC News have a new poll out this morning. If you haven't read it, it shows that Vice President Joe Biden is doing very well, steady and strong in the Midwest. Among likely voters in Michigan, Biden leads 51 to 44 percent. In Wisconsin, it's Biden 57 percent, President Trump at 40 percent. And you have the Libertarian nominee, you can't forget, Jorgensen, who's drawing in the single digits uh, in both of those states. So when you think about this Washington Post ABC News poll today, here's what really matters. Biden has always had a path to the White House through the industrial Midwest. But now he's, he's pacing ahead of President Trump. And this pacing ahead comes as Vice President Biden's campaign is also looking to expand the political map. So for months and months, we've always heard about Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, th- those central states. But because Biden has remained sustained and steady in the polls in the Midwest, his campaign is now looking at the Sun Belt, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina. And this is about Biden looking potentially, potentially, we're six days away from what could be a blue wave. Now, Democrats don't want to get ahead of themselves because of what happened in 2016. But when I was talking to people this morning close to the Biden campaign, it was clear they feel very good about these Midwestern polls. And the Trump campaign, though, is not giving up on any of this. Vice President Pence is going to be in Michigan and Wisconsin later today, later Wednesday. And so you see from the Trump side, and I was told this by a White House official earlier this morning, that Pence is 
someone they're using to try to rally that evangelical base in the final days, just like he did in 2016. Uh, the joke around the campaign in, for Trump in 2016 was that Pence was essentially running for governor in a few Midwestern states. And it seems, based on my reporting, that he's pretty much doing that again. But notable that Biden is, of course, in the Midwest, in Pennsylvania, the Mid-Atlantic, throughout the final week. But he was in Georgia on Tuesday. And as Democrats look to flip the Senate, they're looking at those two Senate races in Georgia. And they're saying, man, maybe uh, Reverend Raphael War Warnock and Democrat John Ossoff, who just a few years ago I was covering for the, the Post when he lost a House race in Georgia, maybe they could win both of those state, uh, seats in Georgia. More likely, though, based on my reporting, is that those Georgia races could go to a runoff in January if no one hits that 50% threshold. But let's bring in now my colleague, Dan Balls, the chief correspondent of the Washington Post. Dan, you and I could talk politics all day. Let's start with the Post poll. What's your read on the latest numbers in Michigan and Wisconsin? Well, Bob, I agree with what you uh, said at the top here, which is that uh, these, these numbers, which you know go along with a lot of other polling that other organizations have done, show that the former vice president is in decent shape uh, in those key states of Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, that 17-point margin that we have is, you know, is, is above what most other polls have. Um, but um, I think it, what it suggests is that there's been no movement in the direction of uh, President Trump over the last couple of weeks, and certainly not since the last debate, um, and that in, in some ways things may be opening up a bit for Biden. We will have to wait and see a little bit more. But as you said, that the, the, the simplest path for Joe Biden to get to the White House is through Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And right now, all of those um, are trending toward uh, Joe Biden. Um, certainly, the Trump campaign is going to fight you know, to the very last sure, hour sure. for those states. But those states look good, and it, it does open up opportunities elsewhere where the Trump campaign will have to play real defense. Now, Dan, I've been looking at your biography this morning, this afternoon, and you've spent some time in the past. You've been at the Post for decades covering Texas. And so I have to ask you about Texas. Cook Political Report now goes from lean Republican to toss-up. Our, our friend Amy Walter was talking about that this morning on Twitter and elsewhere. Is Texas a toss-up in your view? And where what is the state of play? Is it like Arizona, becoming a little bit more liberal, a little bit more blue? Um, it is certainly moving in the direction of the Democrats. I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's at all blue at this point, uh, but it's certainly up for grabs in a way that I think most people did not expect. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in and out of Texas over many, many years, and the things that have been happening there over the last few years uh, point to where we are today, which is that this is a very competitive state. Um, I don't know whether I would list it as a toss-up or or very narrowly lean toward uh, President Trump. Uh, I think based on the history, you would have to say that Trump still has a little bit of an edge. But the, but the remarkable thing is the number of people who are, are already voting in that state. I mean, they are, they are likely to be at the total 2016 vote by the time the early voting ends. So um, the, the movement there is based on demographics. It's based on the, the suburban shift that we're seeing all around the country, uh, moving away from President Trump and toward uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden. So, I mean, it's a fascinating state. The idea that we are talking about Texas six days out from this election 
gives you some indication of kind of the, the, the nature of what this presidency has done uh, to voters and to the electoral map. Dan, one thing I'm trying to figure out is whether it's the Deep South or Texas, are we seeing demographic and political changes in all of these states, as you've noted, or is this really about the pandemic and the president in these final days saying it's going away? He said in Omaha uh, earlier this week, certain areas are heating up, but they'll go down, they'll go down quickly. Is this about the pandemic or about something deeper? Well, I think foundationally it's about demographic change. We know that's the case in Arizona. We certainly know that's the case in Texas. We know that's the case uh, in uh, in Georgia. Um, again, three states that you know the Democrats haven't won in quite a long time, where they have an opportunity to win this time. Um, so that's part of it. But I also think that the, the the spiking of the coronavirus cases around the country is happening at the worst possible moment for President Trump. I mean, he has tried to persuade people for months and months that this is going to go away soon, is almost gone away, is we've rounded the corner, you, you pick, your, uh, pick your quote from the president. Uh, and instead, everything that we are seeing is, is the opposite, and voters get that. I mean, one of the things that happened in Wisconsin between our poll last month there and our poll this month is that his, uh, the, his net approval on handling of the coronavirus went from minus 10 to minus 20. Uh, and so people are seeing what's happening around them and they're listening to what the president is saying and those two don't square. And so I think that the pandemic adds to, particularly in the Sunbelt states, uh, the, the, the demographic changes which are powerful and significant and, and have been moving for some years and they're now conceivably at the tipping point for this election at least. Dan, final question here, and I'd love to have you back in the next few days as we round this final lap. More than 70 million Americans have already voted, and everybody's trying to read into it. What does that mean? Does that mean a blue wave? Does it mean Republicans are voting too and seniors mailing in their vote, standing in line? When you see that number, more than 70 million, what is your read as a veteran political reporter? Uh, my basic read is that it, it shows how important people think this election is. Um, I have always thought, despite all of the obstacles created by the pandemic, that people were going to find a way to vote this year uh, and to vote as safely as they possibly could, but to vote nonetheless. And I think that's what we're seeing. Beyond that, I'm cautious about how you interpret these numbers. They do change from time to time. Um, the Democrats, for example, in Florida, looked like they were doing great the first few days. The Republicans are catching up in some ways. So um, I'm cautious about exactly what it means. Um, we know that there's enthusiasm among Trump voters, um, and we know that more of them will vote on Election Day. But what we're seeing also is it's tremendous enthusiasm on the part of Democrats which is exactly what we saw in the midterm elections two years ago uh, and seems not to have slowed at all. Dan Balls, always a pleasure. Really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Always great to chat with Dan. Oh, I'm going to miss seeing him in the newsroom on election night where we uh, order pizza and all of that, but we'll do the best we can over these live streams and phone calls. But right now, I'm joined by Brooke. Leslie Rollins. She is the acting director of President Trump's White House Domestic Policy Council. She also serves as a close advisor to President Trump. Brooke, welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thanks so much for having me. Am I invited to the pizza party on election night? Only if you're going to start leaking a little bit, Brooke. We're going to need some information. <laughs> okay. Pizza for a good tip. 
All right. Uh, sounds good. That sounds good. Uh, Great to be with you. Thank uh, but you you're so you're from Texas, me. Brooke. You're from Texas. You, you you've 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 labored in Texas on public policy for years. Just to follow up on Dan's my conversation with Dan. What is your take on Texas? Is this a state that is vulnerable for President Trump? You know it well. Well, with full disclosure, I am a policy person, not a political person. So, so take that um, as the first thing I would say to you. But I, listen, I've been working in Texas on public policy for 20 years. And every election, literally every election, I remember back, I worked for Governor Rick Perry years and years ago. And back then he was running against Tony Sanchez and it was going to be a Democrat takeover and, and Tony Sanchez outspent him 10 to one or some crazy number. And election day comes. And I think the governor then beat the Democrat opponent by 19 points. Fast forward two years, the same thing happens. Fast forward another two years. Just four years ago, um, people like your previous guests were saying, oh, Texas is in play four years ago. Hillary Clinton may win Texas. And the president, I think, ended up winning Texas by nine or 10 points. So I, uh, I'm not sure what numbers he's looking at and what his polls look like. But growing up in Texas, living in Texas, I think the idea that there may be a blue wave uh, rolling through Texas is very, very uh, hard to even imagine. Uh, so you're a skeptic on that, Brooke. Uh, but healthcare is an issue in Texas. We know Democrats have tried to use it in House races there and in, in the Senate races in both 2018 and 2020. I know, Brooke, you've talked about President Trump having his health care plan on his website. Mm -hmm. You've said that publicly several times. What I'm asking you th this afternoon is, when are we going to see legislative text for the Trump White House's health care proposal? Well, when are we going to see legislative text on our health care proposal? Well, I appreciate, A, you bringing up health care and B, that question. Uh, we are working on it as we speak. We, as in all of our key issues, whether it's cutting taxes or immigration reform or school choice for, for every American child, but especially those who uh, have not had the opportunity to attend a good school, uh, our health care plan our criminal justice reform, all of the above. You know, the, the great thing about this president is he is a planner, he is also a doer. And so we will be ready. Uh, hopefully the American people rehire us for another four years, uh, understanding this president's vision for this country and what it will do for all Americans, but especially those with the least among us, uh, we'll be ready. When you say we'll be ready, is it fair to say that in the lame duck period, regardless of whether President Trump wins or, or loses, the White House will be prepared to offer legislation on health care to follow up on the Supreme Court's ruling, whatever it is. On, and you're talking about the Affordable Care Act now, what the Supreme Court's ruling would be Correct. on the Affordable Care Act. Okay, good. So let me clarify, I think, for your audience, if you don't mind. We have to keep in mind the the debate or the arguments will be presented to the Supreme Court the week after next, November the 10th. This is the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. third time at the Supreme Court. The opinion won't actually come down until the summer of 2021. So there's a lot of time in there. But but for your for your audience and for all of your listeners and watchers out there, let's let's talk about the Affordable Care Act, if you don't mind. So we have this sort of exaltation of Obamacare right now. In fact, as I was walking in, I saw the former vice president with a big sign behind him. I couldn't hear what he said, but the big sign said something like building better affordable care act. How are we forgetting that under Obamacare, 5 million people lost their coverage, premiums increased 100%, thousands of people lost their doctors, 
you look at a middle-aged couple in Missouri, for example, and you can prove these numbers out, say they're 60 years old, they make $70,000 a year. If one of them has a pre-existing condition and they try to get coverage through the Affordable Care Act, their premiums are $37,000 a year, more than half of what their take-home pay is. Their deductible is $12,000. To say that the Affordable Care Act and putting more money in and doubling down on that is the solution to those with pre-existing conditions just doesn't make much since. What this president has done over the last four years is made the Affordable Care Act better. He's brought premiums down 8%. He's expanded choices significantly well, under Barack Obama and Joe Biden, went up 35%. But to answer your question, I, I think, but I think it's important to set the ground, uh, the foundation here. Well, I mean, the Democrats would contest that he made it, that he made it better. I mean, he removed the individual mandate and he's taking it to court. He's trying to repeal the whole thing. Well, how do you though, I don't understand how you argue that bringing premiums down 8% and expanding the choices within the network exponentially. I don't know. Well, exponentially is probably too much of a strong word. Expanding the choices within the network um, significantly isn't an improvement. Now, we could parse words here and say, well, we are trying to strike it down. The president has been More. unequivocal in that from day one. But I don't think that means that we didn't make it better. Wouldn't you agree that they increased premiums went up 35 percent under the previous administration, down 8 percent under our administration? That's making it better. And we will continue to do that if it is struck down. There's uh, more than a trillion dollars in the system to cover people with pre-existing conditions and in the exchanges. A better solution, a better system will be put in place where money goes to the patient and to the doctors rather than to the special interests. And that's what this president's health care plan is. It's putting patients first versus putting Let's the talk government about in charge. Those with pre-existing conditions. And we'll just leave this this point you just made aside. I would say as a reporter, I wouldn't say it's making it better if you're trying to take it to court and and put pull it off the books, but let's just leave that's that exactly to the side. That's exactly why we're for taking now. it to court. Okay. 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 A discussion for another time, but that's exactly it, why we're taking it to court to make it to make. But this those with pre-existing conditions are on the edge of their seat, Brooke, and they wonder what specifically, what specifically will the White House offer as protection for those with pre-existing conditions if the Supreme Court gets rid of the law. So, and again, to put this all in context, um, under sort of agreed upon numbers, you have about 130 million Americans with a pre-existing condition. Only 3 million of those 130 million are actually in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. So we're really talking about 3 million Americans that are currently in the system. So as I mentioned before, what the plan is, is you take the more than $1 trillion, $1.8 trillion is the actual number, that is currently set aside over the next 10 years to cover the Affordable Care Act. You divide $1.8 trillion uh, by 3 million people with pre-existing conditions, understanding there are more people actually in the system through subsidies, et cetera. But when we're speaking about specifically those with pre-existing conditions, they will have such a better option, such better plans, talking about the couple in Hannibal, Missouri, they'll actually be able to afford coverage for their pre-existing condition that today they can't get through Obamacare. We will make it better. So you're saying they'll have options to buy insurance? versus being covered under the Affordable Care Act as they currently are. That's exactly right. Suppose they can't afford those options. Who, who determines what, what's affordable or not? Well, right now, right now, so many people can't afford it already. I mean, the president under this president, Medicare premiums have come down 35% on average. I mean, if, if you're looking for affordability is truly the number one issue within healthcare. 
Uh, we can talk about pre-existing conditions. We've got to make sure those people are covered. But for the vast majority of Americans, it's the affordability question that's so important. And this idea that we're approaching healthcare with how do we bring the cost down? How do we improve the care? And how do we make it better? That's what the president's healthcare plans pillars include. And he's already done so much in the first three and a half years to hit all three of those pillars. We continue to build on that moving forward and ensuring those with pre-existing conditions that can actually buy the insurance they need, they can afford it. And it's good insurance. Right now in Obamacare, they offer one-third less choices than if you were on the private market, if you're the 180 million Americans on the private market today. And we want Brooke, everyone is there, to have those same options. Is there any chance at this 11th hour in, in the presidential campaign, six days away, that uh, the White House will change its position on the stimulus and try to cut a deal? Well, I thank you for, for bringing that up. I think it's a really important question. I think we have a lot of Americans who are still hurting. Uh, we've been negotiating round the clock. This president has been hyper-focused on trying to get relief to the American people. If you'll sort of look at where we are with the data, I think that where the House started with their number, which we believed included way too many left-leaning wish lists, wish lists, several trillion dollars, where we started, which was a very targeted package, just specifically aimed at Americans who are hurting because of a pandemic that they are not responsible for. Our side has actually come up from our number two different times. The House, Speaker Pelosi, has refused to move. So will there be a deal before Election Day? Probably not, but it sure isn't because this president has not been willing to negotiate and come to the table with a new number, a new number, and the House has been unwilling to negotiate that number. If the Democrats make gains next Tuesday, would the, would the Democrats have a little bit of leverage in your view, and would that number probably rise in terms of a final deal? I think the president wants a deal. I think he is a deal maker. He is he is unequivocal in his um, in his forward leaning view on getting relief to the American people. Depending on what happens Tuesday, that does change that that does change the dynamics of the deal. Whether uh, we gain ground in the House or win the House back, depending on what the president's you know if his win, if it's a, what it looks like in terms of the numbers what the Senate looks like, everything changes. But I can tell you and your viewers this, that this president is absolutely dedicated and passionate to getting more relief to the American people who need it the most. Is he dedicated and passionate to, you know, getting money to undocumented immigrants and 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 changing mm -hmm. our voter laws and all those other? No, he's not, but he wants the taxpayer dollar to be spent wisely, be spent fairly and keep this economy moving. The economy though is, uh seen some speed bumps in the final days. The market's uneasy about the spikes across the country, including in the battleground, the Midwest. You had White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in recent days saying, quote, we're not going to control this pandemic. Do you agree with Mr. Meadows' uh, his assessment? You know, I actually didn't see that interview. I obviously read about it because it's, it's made a lot of news and he and I have not spoken about it. My assessment is this. I believe what he meant to say, and it's probably a little dangerous to put words in his mouth, but that this country has got to get back to work. We have to get back to school and we have to protect our most vulnerable. So I believe what he meant, and I think what the president is focused on is how do we do all of the above? How do we protect our most vulnerable, make sure that our, you know, those with comorbidities, our elderly population, probably our parents, Bob, um, how do we keep them safe? But at the same time, 
the the idea that we are going to stay in this continual lockdown where kids can't go back to school, where suicide rates are at plus 40 percent, where people can't go back to work, where businesses are being shut down. You look at the states that have been most draconian in their lockdowns, the states that probably for the most part are, are blue or run by Democrats, their unemployment rate is much higher, not surprisingly, than the red states. And you look to see where, you know, where the country is focusing on getting people back to work, but also never forgetting we have to protect our most vulnerable. I believe that's what our chief of staff meant when he said what he said on Sunday, but I think this president is resolute. We have an 85% drop in mortality rate since the spring. We've sent hundreds of millions of tests and PPE into the country. Uh, we have a 99% survival rate uh, on those under the age of 70. I think that it's uh, there's no doubt we are turning the corner and that we will continue to deal with this uh, COVID across the country, even with the surges. A final question here, Brooke. You've worked on criminal justice reform with Jared Kushner, with President Trump. Uh, President Trump hasn't put that initiative at the forefront of his closing pitch in this campaign. Is there a reason for that, or do you believe he is saying it enough and, and mentioning actually, that enough? I, yeah, thank you so much for bringing that. It's obviously a passion of mine. My think tank in Texas sort of started the movement on that more than a decade ago. Uh, we closed eight prisons in Texas, closed 13 juvenile facilities over the course of a decade, saved taxpayers billions of dollars. Crime rate went down 30% because that money we instead spent on education and rehabilitation and drug courts, it actually works. And so kudos to this president for uh, seeing that and having the leadership to do it. I think this president, I feel like, talks about it all the time. It was a major uh, discussion in the debate just last Thursday and talking about Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, which mass incarcerated our African-American people. You know, the, the interesting thing is the day before, this did not come up in the debate, and I don't know that it's been in the media at all, but the day before the president had pardoned five uh, African-Americans, four of them had been incarcerated under the 1994 crime bill. And four of them had been given, three of the four had been given life sentences for a first time nonviolent drug conviction. Those are the people this president is fighting for. And how unexpected that President Donald Trump is the one who's making it happen and making those changes and in a bipartisan way. I mean, my message to America is that we can work in a bipartisan way for the, the best of this country and that our brightest days are ahead and, and working across the aisle, which this president did on criminal justice reform and on other key issues, that we really can move mountains and that we will in the coming four years. Brooke Leslie Rollins, appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. And we will now, uh, in just a moment, bring in the House Majority Whip. As I said, the kingmaker in South Carolina for Vice President Biden earlier in this primary, James Clyburn. Majority Whip Clyburn, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. You're, you've seen your state change. We were talking with Dan Balls about this earlier, uh, Majority Whip, about the, the South. You've seen your state change demographically, economically. When you look at all of those currents in South Carolina, what are the chances of Jamie Harrison beating Senator Lindsey Graham? The chances are good. Uh, they are not 50-50 uh, yet. I do believe that the turnout is going to determine uh, whether or not Jamie wins. Uh, a lot of that has to do with how effective 
this voter suppression that has been, and it is very real. Uh, we were involved in that effort, uh, as you know, along with Alabama, uh, for things like curbside voting, the kinds of stuff that we used to do to make it convenient for people to vote. Uh, these things are being undone, and the Supreme Court is being complicit. I never thought I would see the day that the United States Supreme Court would say to a person in a wheelchair, um, we're not going to allow you to vote mm -hmm. at the curbside. You're going to have to figure, figure a way how to get into this building to cast your vote. And a lot of voting places are not handicap accessible. So I don't know uh, how effective that's going to be here in South Carolina, but that's the kind of stuff that's taking place. Majority Whip, you mentioned the Supreme Court. What does the confirmation of Justice Barrett mean for the Senate race, and does it give Senator Graham a boost? Well, I don't think it gives him a boost at all. I think that it highlighted the hypocrisy of Senator Graham. Uh, what, uh, if, if it doesn't mean anything to a voter, that's one thing. But I've got a, a sneaky suspicion that this means hypocrisy means much more uh, than Senator Graham has calculated here. He's the one that said it. Hold me to my words. Use my words against me. If there is uh, a Trump administration and we're in the last year, we will not bring uh, a Supreme Court justice forward. He did exactly that. And so I think that what this did, it highlighted that more than anything else. It may have helped McConnell, but I really don't think it helped uh, Senator Graham at all. Majority Whip, we've talked about South Carolina, and Dan Balls and I were talking about the Deep South. Are you personally convinced that the Democrats can actually have a blue wave that sweeps across the South? Or do you think it's a little bit hyped up? Well, you know, how high are the wave? You know, waves come, <laughs> we saw the massive waves here. Uh, I represent Charleston County, uh, and uh, Beautiful place. the waves can, can take on different heights. I think there's going to be a blue wave. Uh, I don't know uh, how high the waves are going to be, uh, and therefore I don't know how many people it may wash into office. But Jimmy Harrison is already a winner, irrespective of what the results are going to be uh, on, the, on Tuesday, because he's demonstrated to young people in this state uh, that you can, in fact, get involved in the process and you can be much more successful than you may be uh, thinking of what you have been told. When Jamie came to South Carolina back home, he became chair for the South Carolina Democratic Party. He put together a fellowship program there, bringing young people into the process. And 40 to 60 young people he brought in every year. And they spent time getting to know each other away from political campaigns. So, so many people who have been getting together only when there was a political campaign, they were getting together in the off year. They were studying the state, studying the politics of the state, looking at the state's history, black and white, young and old, rich and poor. And so they got to know each other as people before they became politicians. That's made all the difference in the world. And so Jamie has done an incredible job uh, for the political process in South Carolina, irrespective of the results on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday's elections.
What is the reemergence of President Barack Obama on the campaign trail? We saw his fiery speech in Philadelphia early this week. What does it mean for the Democrats in terms of rallying traditional Democratic voters? Well, you know, I think it's always good for a popular uh, Democrat uh, to be out there on the trail. Uh, Barack Obama is very popular. Uh, he is a very good spokesperson uh, for the issues that are important uh, to the Democratic base. And I think that he has uh, the kind of uh, delivery that get, explains things to people in such a way that they will understand. And so I think he's nothing but a plus. Uh, and so in those states, uh, Florida and Pennsylvania, I don't know where else he's going, uh, but hopefully uh, Wisconsin and Michigan as well. Majority Whip, one of your lines earlier in this campaign still makes me laugh because you have yet everybody saying you are the the the, uh, the titan of the Democratic Party, and you said that the only job you're looking for is to be ambassador to the PGA. I'm a golfer myself. I understand the sentiment. <laughs> and it's a great line, Majority Whip, but let's dig a little deeper here. Are you talking to Vice President Biden at all? Let's just say first about the transition process. I've discussed transition with the people uh, who are doing it. Cedric Richmond is one of the five uh, people working on that. You know how close I am to Cedric. Uh, yes, I've talked about that, but not for me. I have the job that I want. Uh, I am very interested in making sure uh, that broadband gets into every home. I want to see broadband done in the 21st century what rural electrification was in the 20th century. I want to see a, an extensive safety net, uh, federally qualified community health centers uh, around this country. I am not looking for a job. I am looking uh, to make headway on issues that I think are important to, to the American people. So no, I'm not going in anybody's cabinet. Uh, I am going to stay where I am, and that and the death limit will be determined uh, by my constituents. So to be clear, Majority Whip, can you make a commitment to your constituents publicly right now that you will stay in the House of Representatives in 2021? Absolutely. Um, and you, uh, I'm not going to mimic Lynch's words, but no, I'm not going in anybody's cabinet. That's not to say I will not take on other responsibilities. I am interested, for instance, in whether or not we can put together an effort, a mechanism, to take a look at the 1986 and 1994 crime bills to see whether or not something can be done to rectify the unintended consequences. You had a guest on just now to talk about that 94 crime bill. They continue to misrepresent that crime bill. I voted for it. A significant number, if not a majority, the Congressional Black Caucus voted for it. But nobody talks about the assault weapons ban that was in the crime bill. Nobody talks about community policing, drug courts, pattern and practice and investigations of police departments, uh, all that. And the Violence Against Women's Act, all of that was in the 1994 crime bill that nobody talks about. They only talk about that part that got left in 
After we left, lost the house, which we did in November 1994, New Gentry took, uh, took over, and that's when we lost control of moving a good, positive crime bill forward. So I want to see a commission or whatever set by Joe Biden, if he's the next president, that will take a look at both those crime bills and see what we can do uh, to rectify the unintended consequences of both. Now, that is something that you don't need to be in the cabinet for. I'm interested in that. And I wouldn't mind uh, being involved in that. But I don't want to go to work for anybody in the White House. You mentioned Cedric Rich Richmond. You, uh, you've mentored him for years. You're a close friend. Would you like to see Vice President Biden pick Representative Richmond for the cabinet? I would. I don't know if he wants to, but I would. Uh, if not in the cabinet, certainly in his administration somewhere. I think Cedric has one of the best political minds that I've ever encountered. Uh, if Jamie Harrison is not successful on Tuesday, he's the kind of guy I want to see uh, somewhere uh, in, in Washington. Uh, there are a lot of young people like that that need to be involved. Me, uh, I don't need to be involved in any of that. So you're going to stay in the House. We, we got that. That's crystal clear majority whip. But I was covering you back when you were doing health care with Speaker Pelosi and President Obama. You know as well as anyone, sequencing matters in Congress. You say you want to focus on criminal justice and, and, and police reform and crime early next year. But what about infrastructure? What should come first? Infrastructure stimulus, then policing and crime? Should crime and race and policing go first? How do you see the sequencing? Well, you can sequence when you introduce legislation. You can move legislation uh, on three or four tracks at the same time. So I see this. And remember, uh, to me, the number one infrastructure issue in this country is the information highway not the interstate highway. I want to see broadband in every home uh, in this country. That's an infrastructure issue with me. It's a $100 billion program uh, that we put together with my rural broadband task force. It has passed the House, uh, and I want to see that pass the Senate, and I want to see the President sign that. So that will create jobs uh, as well. I want to see energy infrastructure put in place the kind of stuff that will give us alternative sources of energy that will have a tremendous transition from fossil fuel to wind and solar and other renewables. They, that will create significant numbers of jobs, and that's also infrastructure, in my opinion. I want to see affordable housing as a part of any infrastructure program going forward. I want to see the building of schools in rural communities, a good efficient schools for rural children. That's infrastructure as well. Those are the things that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in sitting in some ivory tower somewhere. Uh, I'm 80 years old. I'm through with that. <laughs> uh, Majority uh, Whip, what about Senator Kamala Harris, the first black woman to be on a national ticket of a major party? Uh, what's your view of how her experience has been as a national figure on the ticket with Vice President Biden in terms of how she's been attacked by the president and his allies and others on the outside? 
Well, if there's anything I regret about this campaign, it has been the disdain and disrespect that this president and his minions have shown to African-American women. For him to call the first woman of color to ever be on a major national party ticket a monster, for him to look in the camera, referring to an African-American woman who was once on his staff as a dog, these things bother me to no end. And I will never get over them. As I said earlier, I'm the father of three African-American women. I'm the son of an African-American woman. And I do not take kindly to the kind of disrespect and the disdain that this president and many of his people have shown toward her. And to see one of his folks on the, and himself intentionally mispronouncing her name, that to me is not what this country is all about. Joe Biden said this is a campaign to restore this country's soul. No, no, no. This is a campaign to restore this country's goodness. There's a certain goodness about the American people that has been destroyed by this administration. I wanna see that goodness restored. I wanna see our greatness maintained. We are not viewed. Look at all the polls from coming around the world. They do not view us with this respect that this country has always had. And it's all because of this president. I wanna see that respect restored. I wanna see our people's goodness toward each other restored. And I want to see this country's greatness maintained. It's been destroyed. Majority Whip, as the Majority Whip of the Democrats in the House, and as one of the longtime leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus, you're in touch with Black lawmakers in the House Democratic Conference as much as anybody. When you're talking to them in recent days, what are you hearing about what's going on on the ground in Florida? with black voters in other key states in terms of turnout, expectations, energy? What's the real read? Well, it's kind of interesting you ask that question because uh, 15 minutes uh, before I came on with you, uh, I was on with Cedric Richmond. And he said to me, he was in uh, Georgia on yesterday. And he said he was blown away with the energy and the commitment that he saw in Georgia yesterday. He's in Pennsylvania. Uh, as we speak, and he tells me it's there as well. He feels good about it, uh, and uh, since he's been out there, uh, if he feels good, I feel better. Because it's going to be about that turnout. I remember being in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, in the closing days of 2016, and there wasn't the energy that was perhaps necessary for Democrats to win those states. So you are hearing anecdotally, it is there in Georgia and elsewhere. Yes, you know, and uh, as you were in those states, I was in Wisconsin the weekend uh, before in 2016. Mm -hmm. I called the headquarters and I told them that we were losing Wisconsin because the energy was not there. People just took things for granted. I was not a bit surprised that we lost Wisconsin. Because I stayed there for a full day, and I saw nothing happening uh, toward turning the vote out. That's not the case today. And we, as, as uh, Cedric said, uh, on the uh, 
uh, Zoom, I was with him uh, 35, 40 minutes ago. We're going to run through the tape. Nobody is going to run the risk of letting up the, at the finish line. We're going to run through the tape. Majority Whip Clyburn, really appreciate your time this afternoon. I hope you can stay in touch and uh, let us know what's going on in South Carolina. Very good. I hope we have a good day, Tuesday. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.